Welcome to the Capital Spotlight, where we interview institutional investors to learn more about their strategies, sponsor and investment criteria, due diligence process, and asset management practices. I'm your host, Rob Beardsley, and today I have Dylan Borland with me with Borland Capital. Hey, everybody. Rob, thanks for having me on the show today. Hopefully, we can provide some value to your audience. Happy to help. Absolutely. So let's dive in. Tell us a little bit more about both your fund that you're actively investing out of, as well as your family office. Yeah. Yeah. Good question. I like you, man. You get right to the point. <laughs> so um, I'll tell you a little bit, you know, we're, we're pretty boring. We're pretty straightforward, singular focused. Um, Borland Capital Partners really likes multifamily. Uh, I've never ventured outside of, you know, I guess I have to some extent, but you know, I've always stayed in my path and that's investing in multifamily assets in particular. Um, value add opportunities. We really like value add stuff, but you know, Rob, you asked, tell us a little bit kind of like what we're focused on. We really have two focuses over the next, I would say, 24 months, maybe five years. Um, path number one is very much wealth preservation. So taking the family's capital and putting it into the assets that lend themselves well to a wealth preservation strategy, right? And so we're looking for long-term type of hold stuff. You know, it's not a very aggressive play, which we've been very aggressive over the last decade, try to take cash and build it and multiply it. This is more, hey, we've got some cash, let's protect it. So put in nice, stabilized, class A type of assets in some very specific marketplaces. We like, and I'll give you an example, some marketplaces like Nashville, places that I like to be and travel, you know, and in particular is how we really define that criteria. Uh, Nashville, Tennessee, St. Louis, you're in California, so you're familiar with Santa Monica, Topanga area, really like that. Sedona, Arizona, Naples, Florida. So some very specific markets. So that's strategy and focus number one for Borland Capital Partners is take what cash we have, put it into areas we like to be, assets we really enjoy, 10 year longer holds, multi-generational wealth type of stuff, right? Now, Rob, I get asked all the time, you know, people will present those, I'm getting presented class A deals every day and they want us to invest in class A deals with them. And I want to make a distinction there because I know people will listen back to this video and I'll get an email full of ton of class A stuff. We don't want partners on class A stuff. It's our private portfolio. If you've got class A long wealth preservation type of strategies, then we will buy them for you. We'll pay you for those assets, but we're not looking to participate in them. So that's strategy number one, right? Strategy number two is traditionally borrowing capital partners We've launched several funds in the past, really fund orientated. We've done syndications, one-off deals. I think there's markets where funds make sense. I think there's markets where syndications make sense. I think for a while, the last few years, like our last fund is 2016, 2016 to now, we found that you know syndication models really made the most sense. And then we made a shift back in 2020, well ahead of any current events that are going on. We just said, hey, we think the market's going to shift. It'd be great to relaunch a fund strategy. So we're actually in the middle of raising, we've got about a third of it actually already raised, a $200 million fund focused entirely on real estate private equity. So strategy two is taking that fund, deploying that fund for growth, right? And the focus outside of it, we're traditionally, Rob, we were focused on producing our own properties, producing our own leads and investing in that. Right now, we really want to focus on aligning ourselves with good owner operators, syndicators like yourself or other syndicators who have a proven track record, who need the equity side or the equity component 
And because we don't, I'm, I'm always moving away from complexity. I don't have fun any longer owning, managing, <laughs> right? So I'm thinking about how can we build a smarter machine and we can build a smarter machine by letting you guys do all the work, provide the equity. Um, and so that's what we're really trying to do there. So growth. Now that's value add stuff, right? And so we're really looking for value add plays, not class A stuff where there's very little value add, not 10 year plays. The fund's got to buy, you know, five years or less the deal. You've got to hit a 15% IRR. So there's some metrics, right? So, um, but we're really looking to deploy that capital with good and really looking to tap into the syndication market because there's a lot of great syndicators out there, which you already know that, you know, are always raising capital for deals. And we'd like to be a partner in that. Does that make sense? That, makes that sense. was a long winded answer. <laughs> well, there's, yeah, there's definitely a need for, for what you're providing and you're capitalizing, I think on an opportunity, especially in the coming months as repricing potentially occurs in the market. So you mentioned value add a couple of times. Yeah. How, how have you, I know you mentioned things got tighter 2016 to 2019, but how do you foresee value add looking in the next 24 months or even today in terms of the opportunities? You know, I think you, that's a good question. I think you, you very much get what you focus on. Let's face it. There's always value add opportunities. There's always classy properties. There's always aging properties. Properties aren't getting any younger. So, you know, my experience has been over the, the last, you know, 15, 16 years in studying the cycles. I mean, there's, there's always great value add opportunities in any marketplace, whether it's going up, down, sideways, whatever, like in single family real estate, we call it the three D's, right? For, for motivated sellers, death, divorce, and destitution. Well, in multifamily space, there's always people, there's a lot of syndicators right now that have overpaid for assets, right? And haven't executed their value add strategy. There's a lot of sellers that are very uncomfortable. Um, so, you know, quite honestly, we haven't seen much of a change. I will say, though, we've seen an increase in motivation recently. I think people right now are thinking very illogically. They feel a lot of stress and pressure. I think that will sort itself back out. We'll get a little bit more into a normal market. But I do think you're going to see a correction and you're going to see a lot more properties opening back up. But um, there's, always, there's always value add properties and value add you know, you know, as well as I, it's not just the condition of the property, but sometimes you have really crappy management, right? They're not running the property very well. So we're looking at condition. We're looking at assets that are well below market value. We can come in, make some improvements, which, you know, you're familiar with. And where can we maybe add some efficiency on the management side? A lot of owners out there, you know, manage these things, even institutional owners, they get, sometimes you see these really massive portfolios and they get lost and they start to kind of self implode in terms of their management and their systems and processes. And so taking some of those assets off their hands, does that make sense? Yeah, it definitely makes sense. And I, and I like how you brought up the management play because that's been something that's been more of a believable story in the past couple of years because yeah. the value add interior renovation has been overdone to an extent and people have been selling a value added deal to the next guy to then value add it further and keep focusing on the renovation aspect and it's a more difficult story to buy into rather than seeing a straightforward asset that's being mismanaged and can be leased up to 90 95 percent uh based on the comp so that's something that's definitely been a focus of ours um yeah and less so on the on the renovations yeah look i i think you know there's always properties that are aging that have, you know, need updates, need some sort of physical value add to them as well too. But, you know, one thing thought, and I just wrote it down as you were talking there, Rob, 
Uh, one thing came to mind in, in a strategy that we, we employed the last 24 months, in addition to searching for capital or uh, value as properties is, is a topic called recapitalization, which you're probably familiar with. So we shifted a lot of our marketing to, hey, if you're not interested in selling, maybe you have partners who want out, or maybe you have assets that you'd like to recapitalize, and we're able to pick up a lot of assets through recapitalizing them um, in a syndicate type of structure, bringing in new equity um, to the puzzle and assets that we wouldn't have had otherwise. That, that owners, you know, we've got a deal right now, two of the owners want to stay in, one wants out, All right? So we're going to go in, the last recapitalization we did was for a luxury hotel, 42 million. Two partners wanted to stay in, everybody else wanted out. So, um, you know, I think people can also be thinking about not just so much black and white value add buying assets, but also looking for re opportunities to recapitalize assets as well too. And then you come back in with your new syndicate structure for new equity. Absolutely. I was actually looking at your website this morning and saw the recap uh, yeah. section. So I thought I was definitely going to bring it up. So let's go yeah. a little deeper on that and give us maybe uh, an example or just talk a little bit more with the specifics and the mechanism of a recap. Yeah. Yeah. Good question. So, I mean, from a 10,000 foot overview, you know, you've got, you know, a lot of the assets out there, multifamily, senior living, hotel, whatever, right. Are, are really syndications. I mean, there's very few guys out there who are bringing to the table all of the equity, right? There's always partners, there's always equity partners behind a lot of the deals that are out there. And so now with that, there's always equity partners who want out, right? Or maybe they're tired of the asset or they just wanna take their capital. Like we have one guy that's very close to us. He loved multifamily for the last 30 years and then now he's trying to get all of his equity out of multifamily assets and put it in senior living, right? So there's, you know, you know, people's investing criteria, even our own and, and people's focus and agenda is always changing. And so what we're really fishing there is for, you know, partners in deals, equity partners in current deals who want to trade out or not want to trade out, but maybe want to say, okay, we have this asset, you know, that's been paid off. We own it free and clear. When we bought it, it may be, you know, was 5 million in equity. Now it's got 40 million in equity. We want to pull some of that out and put it into new deals and new opportunities, right? And so, you know, looking at those types of opportunities like that, um, and we've been very successful with it, right? And so we'll come in and say, okay, you need, let, let's just use you our, our last example. You need 42 million in equity. Well, our group will come in. In this particular case, the seller was going to leave in 10 of that 42 million. Because remember, he wanted, he wanted to stay in, others wanted out. So we'll recapitalize 32 million. We'll bring in the other 32 million, but now we control the whole structure, right? And so we come in under our new syndicate structure. So our investors have their preferred returns and their distributions and our strategy and everything else, just like you would sort, you know, syndicate a normal deal. So, um, you know, it's worked out very, very well because, you know, there's a lot of people out there who don't necessarily want to sell outright. They want to keep and hold, but you know, they're kind of taking all of, they've extracted all of what they could out of this property in terms of returns and everything. And they're just kind of sitting still right now. Right. And so if we can come in, provide new capital, new equity, they can take that and deploy it into new deals. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you're going to see a lot of opportunity on that side yeah. today with, dislocation and, and sellers wanting to potentially get out, but they can't get out of the price they want. So they want to get some of their equity back 
And uh, how have you, I guess the most complicated part of this is determining the valuation of the property to give the people that want out a fair valuation for their equity. Since it's not an outright sale, you have to have some value or some return metric that they're getting out on. So what, what have you seen to work best there? Well, uh, I want to say, I think that's the least complicated part. Um, you know, quite frankly, if somebody re wants to recapitalize, we're going to look at the deal, the cash flow, the operating expenses, just like you would a syndication anyways, look at how much equity they're trying to pull back out. And you know, as well as I do is, you know, your cash in the deal versus your income, you know, dictates our return. And so for us, we're going to look at it and say, we can put in a maximum amount of cash to hit the returns that we need to hit. And for us, it's an 8% benchmark, a 15% IRR over certain time, you know, time periods. And so, um, you know, when we just present that opportunity to the seller and say, this is the maximum amount of cash we can put in and still need to hit the returns that we need to hit. And do you want to, you know, recapitalize under this structure or not? Right. And so we very much dictate, you know, the value, I guess, you know, and what, what's value, right? The value to us is can we hit the returns that we need to hit to deploy the capital? Right. So I'm not, I don't even care too much about the purchase price. That's irrelevant. I'm looking at what's my cash and cash returns. What's my overall IRR. And we present that. And if it makes sense for everybody, great. If it doesn't, that's okay too. Makes it's sense. easy so for me, you know, <laughs> <laughs> right. It, yeah. They, they have a hard decision to make, I guess. Right. So going back to the longer term approach, I don't think too many people are talking about a 10 plus year strategy, right? And uh, what is the typical debt strategy that goes along with that long term ownership? Well, you know, my, my debt strategy always has had the least amount of debt, no matter what. And so, you know, my idea for our, for our family's portfolio is to have all the assets you know, free and clear within a 10 year period. So we're actually taking, instead of taking cash back out of the assets and distributing it for whatever, we're using it to pay off debt. And we like to keep leverage very, very low, you know, 60%, 70% type of leverage at the most. Um, but, you know, for us, it's not so much about the returns as preservation. You know, I want to build a portfolio of assets that I can hand down to my kids and their kids and their kids and set it up in such a way where the second and you know most most wealth is lost like 50% is lost second generation another 25 third generation usually by the fourth generation it's gone right and so having those assets where you know they're buildings that are going to last and by the way that's another thing they're buildings that are going to last 100 years right not the crap that's built that's 50 years and the things already you know disintegrating right and so really focusing on two three generations out you know is this asset free and clear can we set it up in a way where, you know, God forbid we're off this planet and our heirs, you know, try to try to sell it. They don't want to have real estate or they try to, you know, tap into the equity. And so we can, can we set it up where you can't tap into the equity into this thing? So, you know, our focus is to pay it off, roll all of the income back in, get the debt completely wiped off of those assets. Thanks to the tenants. Thank you tenants for paying off, <laughs> you know, and um, have them where they're really, truly set up for multi-generational wealth, um, you know, because we don't want the family thinking about, you know, wealth if they don't have to, right? Let's get the income problem solved. I didn't grow up in wealth, um, and I struggled most of my life trying to, you know, generate it. And then once you have it, and the reason why we don't hear too many people talk about it is because it can take a lifetime sometimes to build, you know, your first problem is, how do I get enough, how do I get wealth? 
And then you get wealth and you figure out, all right, how do I keep it? Right. And so that, that's a strategy there. And it takes a long, you know, it takes a long time. The time frame is different for everybody, but it takes a long time to get in that position where, okay, now you have enough to relax. How do we keep it? And then think about future generations, right? Yeah, no, that was a lot of good stuff there for sure. So jumping into the fund back now, yeah. uh, can you walk through an example partnership structure in which your fund has invested before? For example, the, the general fees, the preferred return structures and, and the general terms of the partnership. So if we're placing capital with a syndicator, is that what you're referencing? Yep. You know, we're, we're, we're open. It's, it's across the board. I mean, most syndications you see, you know, two, two classes of investors. You have your general partners and your LPs. Um, you know, sometimes we get approached and the general partner needs to use our balance sheet and they want us to be a sponsor, right? And so usually we'll take a position in a GP role in some sort of capacity for that. Um, but, you know, we really don't want to have, you know, too much control over the deal. Most of our deals are on the LP side of a syndicate structure. Uh, we were perfectly fine taking a backseat. Um, it just depends. Like if you come to me and say, Dylan, we need 100% of the equity, you know, there's going to be some carve outs to decision um, that we're going to want to have, you know, buy, sell decisions, refinance decisions, decisions over a certain dollar amount. And by the way, and institutional investors very much want some level of control. And so we have to also pass that down on the syndicate structure. And again, it's, it's minimum. It's just, hey, are there certain parameters being hit, like you said they were going to be hit? And if they fall too low, below that, right or an obligation to try to protect all. Uh, and we might need to take back control. You know, hopefully not. Hopefully we do a good job in finding experienced partners and syndicators where that doesn't have to happen. But um, generally, those are types of the terms that, you know, we're, we're in. But mostly, you know, honestly, we very rarely make up the whole equity stack. We don't really like to, you know, 25% partner, 50% rest of the equity so that we, you know, minimize our downside. And uh, in that scenario, we're, we're pretty quiet, man. Just, you know, do what you said you were going to do and give us our money back in five years. <laughs> You know, so with that five-year timeline uh, in your investment criteria page, you mentioned that an exit can be done through a sale or a refi. Can you talk about a refi scenario and how an ideal, you know, quote exit is is managed through a refi? Yeah, so I'll give you an example. Very early on, um, when we syndicated our own deals, my strategy to build my portfolio was to find value add properties that had enough value add. We're in 24 months or so, 36 months. I've increased, like, for example, we had a 96 unit very early on. We bought for 4.2 million in 19 months. You know, we, it, it valued at 6.7, 6.8 million, right? And so that's enough value in a 19 month period where we can refi, return all the investors' capital. They still got like a 60 something percent IRR. It was absolutely insane, right? Uh, on their cash, which is fine. Um, and then we keep it 100% going forward, right? And so that was a very effective strategy in, in building our portfolio. Um, so I do think that if you find a really incredible value add property, um, you know, you can exit through a refi just fine and hit the returns that your investors want to see and everybody's going to be happy. Now, there are scenarios where, because remember when we're refining, it's 70% LTV or 75 or 80% LTV. 
But there are scenarios where we refi and there's not enough there to hit the returns. We're going to cut our investors short. And so in that scenario, we might have to make a sale, right? To hit the obligation to the investors. So it just really depends on, is there enough value add in that asset where you can exit through a refi? I think most syndicators would prefer to do that and then own the assets going forward, but you just get some deals where that's just not possible unless you hold it seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years, which, you know, most investors don't want to be in a deal that long. And so then, you, you know, you have to let the deal dictate to you, you exit through a refi, you exit through a sale. And most, most institutional investors want to see a sale because they want full maximum value, full market value for the asset, right? Um, we have the flexibility because, you know, I wouldn't consider us an institutional investor or a family office, right? So we have a much more flexibility there. I don't care what happens as long as we get the IRRs that we're seeking. Um, I don't care if it's, you know, extracting another 500,000 of the asset or not. I just have a very certain number I need to hit. Anything better than that is fantastic. We don't really care, right? So, um, you know, the, the deal and the assets could very much dictate whether you refi, your strategy is a refi or a sale. So I don't know, it just depends on your deal, you know? Yeah. What's, what would be the breaking point in terms of the amount of capital that was originally invested to be returned upon the refi? And then what should the cash on cash look like going forward? Say that again. Saying upon a refi, how much return of capital should occur? 50% of the investor's money, 100% of the investor's money, and then how much cash flow should, should be there on an ongoing basis there on out? Well, yeah, I mean, that's a loaded question. I mean, every deal is so, you know, so unique, you know, without looking at the specific performer specific deal, it's hard, it's hard to tell, right? I can tell you this, I'm, I'm not, I don't want to be in a scenario personally as an investor where like, I just got presented a deal today, they were going to refi in three years and return like 20% of the equity. Now that's great because we can get cash flow up, we can get cash and cash returns up, maybe, right? Maybe, because not every time. But then it's like, you know, it's just like a bank, like a bank's committed to you to loan you the money for five years because they've looked at that over five years and said, this is the type of return we're trying to hit. And if you, and if you cash them out early, they have what? A defeasance fee or an early termination fee. So me personally, as an investor, you know, I don't want to be cashed out early. I gave you $5 million. I want to earn 10% on that for five years. I don't want the equity back, right? So um, that, that's just my, you know, I, I, maybe I'm biased on that. Um, but for me as an investor, I really like to see, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to exit, it's either going to be a complete return of capital in one of two ways. Either you can completely return it through a refi, you added enough value and we can hit our returns or you have to sell the asset and that's it, right? We're not really too much interested in, you know, returning partial capital. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's exactly what I was looking for. Perfect. So in terms of your five-year hold period in your fund, how do you think, because what I would guess is earlier on, maybe five years ago, maybe even three years ago, most deals would exit sooner than five years because sure. the appreciation value was created and, and you could actually meet the returns by exiting earlier. How do you think hold periods are going to be over the next 24 months, potentially longer due to what we may go through in a downturn? Um, I don't think so. You know, I mean, there's, so when we're underwriting deals, for example, you know, there, there might be some added time because we're like, for example, we're looking at deals, we're underwriting like no, for the next 12 months, no rent bumps. We're not getting aggressive with rent bumps, right? We might just take it, operate it as normal, maybe implement some rubs if it's not there, 
Um, and then year two, instead of a standard 3% growth, we might look at a 2% growth um, and then 3% there year forward. But you know, from the opportunities we've seen, we've got three deals on the table right now that are all gonna be able to exit you know, in 24 months if they want to. There's enough value add there. I think it very much, you know, real estate has gotten so expensive in a lot of different marketplaces, it's gonna correct. And I think, you know, um, it's, it's, you know, Texas, Arizona maybe hasn't corrected. We're a little bit more fortunate being in Michigan because Michigan's kind of always a really nice return cap rate type of market. So is Florida. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I answered your question or not. <laughs> well, you did bring up underwriting value add. And I think that's somebody that that's something that a lot of people are wondering about today. Yeah. And how do they underwrite the value add? Do they just throw the value add business plan away and just say, well, rents are going to stay flat forever? Or are we going to put our value add on hold? And let's just we'll pick it up in two years when the economy picks back up and is firing and also so how do you how do you look at if somebody presents you a deal and says we've got a business plan we're going to put five thousand a unit into the interiors raise rents a hundred dollars are you going to say no or are you going to say maybe maybe in two years yeah so i would say this so i can only speak to how we're underwriting deals so on our value add stuff you know the value add really where we could start implementing it right at close um, we're being a little conservative there right now. We're saying, okay, we're not going to implement it year one. Let's operate the asset. So when we're underwriting our performa, let's operate the asset as normal. Hey, and by the way, there might actually be a slight decrease. We're planning for economic occupancy a little bit higher. You know, if we were underwriting, you know, we, I don't think you should, but a lot of people underwrite 95% occupancy. Yeah, hey, look, the asset's 100% occupied for the last three years, you know, whatever. Um, we've always underwrote at 92. Right now we're underwriting year one, 90% occupancies. We're underwriting, you know, maybe a, another 5% economic vacancy factor to that. Um, we are anticipating, you know, maybe not a growth or a slight decline in terms of other income, right? And so if other income for the year is 250, maybe we take it down a little bit, 240 year one. So I think if anything, you know, in terms of a value add strategy, you know, to answer your question, year one, I think in, in essence, it, on paper, it's put on hold. And then we start to get more aggressive with it years two, three, four, five, six, right? And forward. And it starts, I really think if you study the cycles in real estate, you know, these things usually last, a recession usually lasts 12 to 24 months with the worst being at the tail end of that period. Most of the time it's closer to 24 months, right? And so, you know, we anticipate it to get worse before it's going to get better. You might see rents drop 10% in a recession, by the way, right? But, but your economic occupancy can account for that. Um, and then we get more aggressive. We start to amp up year two, year three, year four in that value add strategy. But nobody knows. I mean, you know, you've got to get, I think if you underwrite and plan worst case scenario, keep things as they are or slightly below, fantastic, right? And then, um, you know, going forward, you can, you can implement that over the next two, three, four years. You're, you're, but listen, you could get involved in that. Like we've got class A, class B assets. There's no problems. We're executing rent bumps. We're, you know, consistent with 3% growth. Um, you know, no occupancy issues, no delinquency issues. It's a different, it's a different class of property, right? So you don't know until you get involved, but I think if you plan worst case scenario as you're acquiring new deals, meaning nothing happening in year one, you're going to be fine. 
um, and then really getting aggressive with your value add plays, two, three, four, five. Listen, if you have a really good value add play, you don't need five years. We all know you can, you can if you have a really good value add, you could exit that property in, in one or two lease cycles, right? So one to two years. That's a good value add property. So, you know, I, I don't think it's going to delay a five-year term or push back a five-year term at all. You know, if you, if you have to go five years out, then you, then you really probably don't truly have a good value add property. Good value add property, you can, you know, you can fully reposition that in 12 to 24 months. Yeah, I like that. The lease cycle really makes a lot of sense. If you, if you, maybe if you miss one of those lease cycles, then it ends up being three. But yeah. in general, value add, I totally agree. You should be yeah. able to handle that in, in two lease cycles. Yeah. So on your investment criteria page, you request sponsors provide a random rent roll in T12 out of their portfolio. So mm -hmm. what, what are you looking for specifically when, you, when you're looking at those uh, financials? Well, we want to see how the property is being managed, right? We want to look at delinquencies. And so are we letting accounts age quite a bit? You know, we want to look at, hey, we want to have a discussion with you on this asset. What was your original plan? Show us your original pitch deck, your original. What did you tell investors was going to happen and what's actually happening today, right? So, you know, we're just, we're just going to spot check kind of your portfolio and see what was your original plan? And are you doing better or worse than that original plan? And your rent roll is like, you know, I always equate it to the, the, the blood work, right? So, so you go to a hospital, what's wrong with me? They take 16 vials of blood and they test everything under the sun, right? I can tell a lot about the health of an asset looking at the last three rent rolls in collections, right? In, in the management team, that tells me quite a bit. So that's really what we're looking for there is what's the health of the asset? What's the health of the tenant base? you know, uh, what was your original plan and how is it playing out? That's what's important to us. You know, did you, were you, you know, you know, as well as I do, Rob, there's a lot of syndicators in this space. I just saw a deal today where it's just like they, they pad the shit out of the performance to make it look sexy. Right. And it, and you can, you can see through it, you know, very often it's like, are you, did you, are you selling investors? Like for us, dude, I make, I make our performance look so unattractive. Why would anybody ever invest with us? Like the, just the returns suck. Everything sucks. I just, I stress test them down to worst case scenario and I sell that. And for the people who buy that, then they actually start to get the returns. They're like, holy crap. Like this is, you didn't, you didn't say this, but there's more people out there who tweak and twist and pad the performance. It's scary, you know, to make it work. Um, and so that's what I'm looking for is, are you the type of investor who is a little bit more conservative, who's planning worst case scenario? Or are you the type of syndicator who's trying to tweak things to make it look attractive to get your fees and everything else and do a deal, right? Because you need to do a deal to survive. That, that's what we're re really looking for. Yeah. So you, you brought up comparing the initial underwriting or the, the pitch deck to current performance. And yeah. I really like that a lot. I think that's one of the clearest ways to cut straight through the noise. And, and one of the ways that we do that is in our quarterly reporting, we'll actually show the quarterly financials that we initially projected before we bought the property and we compare yep. it to that quarter's actual performance. And in addition, we also compare the performance to our budget because obviously the budget over time yep. can change from what we originally underwrote upon acquisition. So that just brings me to reporting. What That's one example, but what else are you looking for from an investor reporting standpoint? 
from an investor reporting standpoint, you know, really what's important to me is, and I don't know how long you've owned the asset, but let's look at the P&L statements and, and the current three rent rolls. Really, that's all we, you know, th those tell us everything, right? So, you know, those are really the most important reports to us in addition to your original marketing material and pitch deck in, in your plan. And I agree with you, you know, every year, every year your budget's going to change, but how much has it changed? Is it, is it for the better or is it for the worse, right? And so when you budgeted this property and you over padded it and you were say 60% expenses and now you're at 52, that's fantastic. Right. But if you got in and you thought you could be really aggressive and get things down to 50% expenses and they're at 55, 60, well, there's a problem. What happened there? Right. So, you know, for us, um, I really think when we look to make an investment, we're looking to make an investment, not in the asset itself, in the individual, because I think, you know, me own, let's, let's have the same, let's look at the same property. Let's call it one, two, three Apple street. Okay, it's a 200 unit property. Me with my background experiences, life experiences, skill set, whatever, is gonna have an entire, if I were to buy 123 Apple Street and you looked at it over five years, the performance of that asset, it's gonna look entirely different than if, and I'm just gonna use you as an example because you're sitting here with me, than if you looked at, than if you bought it and you looked at the financials over five years and then you're gonna have entirely different, you know, mindset and strategy and, so for me, you know, it's, it's the success of any, any deal really, you know, is, is how is the owner operator? How is the management team thinking? What are their skill sets? What are their experiences? How are they operating it? Because we can have five different owners of that same property and you're going to see five different, you know, ways that property was managed and the performance on it. One guy might take that same property and just absolutely kill it while another guy's going to take that same property and sink it. So for us, we're really focusing in kind of our final test is, you know, I really want to get in your mind and, and align ourselves with, do you think like we think? Because we like the way we think. We've been very successful at it and, and we're, we tend to be more conservative, but we're looking for owners and, and operators who are in alignment with our core values, our culture test. You know, what's your experience? What's your skill set? How do you react to certain situations? Um, that type of stuff, right? Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely some good stuff there. So what kind of assurances have you given sponsors in the past when you've committed to a deal? Obviously, if an investor, none. none. <laughs> Sorry, finish your question. <laughs> uh, you, you, you finished it. I'm just, there, there are certain circumstances where maybe a sponsor might be jumping into a deal based on your uh, commitment to it, and then it could result in backfiring on them or they get stuck with the hard money and things like that. So um, have you ever been in an experience like that or have, have, you know, what is your pitch if a sponsor is concerned about that? So you're asking, you know, if, if somebody's seeking equity from us and um, we say, okay, we're going to give you 5 million in capital and then we back out. Is that what you're kind of saying? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, first of all, in terms of insurances, we don't insure anybody anything. We're very specific with our words, right? But what, but what we do is we're very thorough in our upfront underwriting. And so, you know, as a syndicator, you should be, if an investor is going to commit capital to you, you should be getting a capital commitment. And in that capital commitment, there's going to be, you know, penalties for not providing the capital, right? And so, 
if you're not presenting that, you're exposing yourself. You know, I remember some of my first deals, one of my first three deals, we had an investor um, pull out 500,000 on a $1.7 million raise two weeks before closing. Thank God I was in a position, you know, when I buy an asset, I always buy it with the thought in mind, I'm going to close at 100%, whether somebody invests in it or not, period. And that's always saved my butt because I don't care. Pull out 500 grand, I'll put in the 500 grand. I know this is going to be a win. Um, but a lot of people aren't in that position. And so, you know, imagine that's what you're referencing. Imagine the problem. Somebody pulls out 500 grand two weeks ahead of closing. And now what? Now what do you do? Right. Just but remember, you've only got to raise enough to close. And so maybe you still have enough to close and you can replace that 500 grand, you know, later after you close. But a syndicator should be asking your investors, hey, Dylan, are you interested in the deal? Yes, I'm interested. Great. Sign this capital commitment. There should be penalties associated. I'm fine with that. If I say to you, Rob, I'm going to give you 500 grand. I don't give it to you. I understand that's a problem, right? And so there should be penalties associated with that. But I'll tell you from our side, um, I ask a lot of questions. I do a thorough um, analysis of the property and everything well ahead of providing a yes to you, Rob, I'll commit. And if I, just my personal character, if I say to you, I'm going to commit, I'm going to commit, right? And so I would never leave somebody hanging. We've never been in that position before. Um, and I think that's why we have the reputation we have. And by the way, sometimes there's been commitments. I wanted to pull back, but I promised the person that I would do it. And, you know, the deal wasn't as attractive or as sexy as I would have liked it to be. Maybe we broke even or had mediocre returns, but I still went through with the capital commitment. So if we say we're going to commit, we're going to commit, no agreement or not. But we're going to be very, very thorough, probably more than most people would, ahead of that commitment. Does that make sense? Because yeah. if I'm going to give you a yes, you need to feel confident that, you know, we're going to provide the capital. And, and you know, we don't want the reputation of getting, you know, this is a small community. So we don't want a reputation of getting involved in a deal and then backing out for whatever reason. We're just not the type of a firm. You know? Right. That's a huge reputation. That's very important for yeah. capital providers. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So the last question here is what are you looking for in the market, whether it be a certain deal feature like a 1031 exchange or a certain type of strategy that you just aren't seeing and, and you wish people were offering it more? Help me understand that better. <laughs> so for example, let's say you were looking to invest your long-term equity strategy with sponsors. Yeah. you'd have a hard time finding sponsors to actually deploy that strategy with, right? Just because there's not a lot of sure. sponsors who are seeking that. So that's the question is basically, what are you looking for or what is your fund interested in, in partnering or doing? And they're just having a hard time finding that. Yeah. Okay. All right. I get it. So, um, I would say, you know, our biggest challenge is people just not paying attention and asking the right questions. You know, we've presented a lot of opportunities, um, of things that just, you know, when you're, when you're presenting a deal to somebody, it's like, you you really got to ask first, number one, are you interested in this type of an asset investment? And number two, help me find out more about you. How can I provide value to you? What types of returns and structures and, you know, what's most important to you? And, and, and then listen, right. And, and take good notes, you know, and it's like, okay, well, you know, you've got this deal in, you know, Florida, I don't think it, based on what you told me, Dylan, I don't think it's in alignment, so I'm not even going to send it to you, but I'm going to write this down in, in deals that come up that are in alignment. I'm going to make sure that, you know, I'm listening and they're very 
I'm going to only send you stuff that I know you're interested in. I think one of the things that we get hit with a lot is people just don't listen and they don't ask the right questions. Everybody gets excited. They get it. So you ask challenges right now, right? Things that we wish were happening. I think I wish that people would just take themselves out of the equation. Yes, it's exciting. You got a deal. You got to raise equity. And all you're thinking about is yourself and your team and what you're going to benefit. But that's the wrong way to get a check. You need to be thinking about how can I provide value to the, to the person who's providing the equity? I don't care about myself, right? Like our fund isn't anything to do with us. It's, hey, we are committed to just providing incredible value in returns to our investors. I never think about us ever, ever, right? And I think that's one thing that happens in this space that, um, you know, I hope shifts is uh, people need to take themselves and what they're going to get out of the equation and really focus on the people who are cutting you the check because that's, that's what's most important. So I wish more of that um, was happening. I think people are going to get a lot more checks and a lot more equity if they're focused on that type of a strategy, right? I couldn't agree more. That's, that's some great advice. And on that note, we will uh, we'll conclude the show. Thank you so much for the good discussion and yeah. uh, all the insights. Thanks so much, Rob.